This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 151. Today we discuss the philosophy of science. It's time for another episode of Christ the Center, your weekly window into a Reformed conversation. My name is Camden Busey. This is episode number 151. We're very excited today to be speaking about the philosophy of science. And let me introduce to you the panel. We have Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is teacher of the congregation at Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church. In Ringo's, New Jersey. Good morning, Jeff. It's good to have you. Yeah, good morning, Camden. We've got you back. This is episode three now in a yeah, row, so uh, we're, we're starting a new streak great. here. Maybe we'll beat uh, Joe DiMaggio's hit streak here in, at some point in time. <laughs> got, the Lord got, is uh, 53 more. We also have a good friend of ours uh, who's new to Westminster, but he's been on the program before. He's not new to the Reformed Forum. We have Carlton Wynn, who is a Ph.D. student at Westminster Theological Seminary. Hi, Carlton. Hi, Camden. It's great to have you back. Carlton is studying uh, systematic theology, looking to do a dissertation, uh, focusing on the inerrancy of God's Word. And so we're very excited to have his input here. And uh, welcome. It's, it's, Thanks, it's man. It's glad to have you back. Great to be here. We also have Jared Oliphant, who is Director of Admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary. He is calling in on Skype today. He's a first-time user. Welcome, Jared. How does it feel hey. to be digital? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's good. Nice to be uh, communicating with you from a distance for a change. <laughs> oh, man. It's one of those backhanded compliments. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's... Uh, <laughs> I had a grandmother, very dear, I loved her dearly, but she would say things to people. She didn't mean it, but at times she would say things like, oh, you you look great. Uh, your face used to look so fat. <laughs> <laughs> but she meant it, uh, it. She had no clue of the way it sounded, you know. She was just a sweet lady. Are you equating uh, Jared with your grandmother? Well, in this is there's an analogous uh, uh, situation. Similarities and dissimilarities. <laughs> telling me it's great to communicate at a distance. I'm starting yeah. to question some things about myself. Uh-oh. Anyway, but uh, today we've got a fun discussion. But before we get into that, we, of course, want to let everyone know about a few books. These are This episode is going to be recorded um, several weeks before it is actually published. So some of these book um, recommendations and announcements might be a little bit out of sync, but regardless, we want to let people know. Uh, we have been mentioning the Bob Godfrey Festschrift, uh, which is published by Westminster Seminary, California. That's titled Always Reformed. And there are many great contributions in there, one from our dear friend Daryl Hart. We've got uh, contributions from Michael Horton, Sinclair Ferguson, um, Richard Muller, even. Yeah. Uh, so many people. I, I can't list them all right now, but uh, check that out. And there's some excellent articles in there. And uh, I'm uh, in the process of trying to schedule many of those contributors on future episodes. I would also like to mention uh, a great biography that I'm thinking about. Jeff, do you know what I'm thinking of? Yes, it would probably be the Herman Bovink biography. Yeah, that's right. So let us know a little oh, yes. bit about that and Ron Gleason. Well, we've interviewed Ron twice. Uh, yeah, once or twice, yeah. Once or twice, right. Mm-hmm. And, and the, uh, on Herman Bovink, and of course that conversation, we knew that the biography was coming out. Right. That was probably about a year ago, so it was well in advance of the or two. Yeah. Or publication. But uh, And we've had a chance to look at a PDF of that, and it looks like a, a wonderful biography 
theological biography or what would we call it an intellectual biography yeah history of thought it, it includes uh, some a fair bit of discussion of his uh, father uh, because of course his father's ministry life and ministry impinged upon uh Herman's as well yeah but it's a uh, definitely it's substantial it's 500 and some odd pages <laughs> yes yeah, this is no joke right. from PNR correct correct so we look forward to that biography on Herman Bovink if anybody's listening live at the moment there's a half off sale at WTSbooks.com. And so uh, you act quickly and pick that up for yourself and maybe some copies for any uh, budding theologians in your family. They might be a nice Christmas present. We, we should note that in the future, at some point in 2011, a condensation of Bovink's Reformed Dogmatics is due out of one volume. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And is this going to be a different? I, I guess it has I, to, but it must be similar to our reasonable faith. I would think, and of course, Burkhoff, because we often yeah. think of Louis Burkhoff systematic as this condensation of uh, Bovink's four-volume work. Uh-huh. Uh, it'll be interesting to compare it. It does not appear to be a redo uh, of our reasonable faith, which is yeah. actually it's a distinct work. Magnalia Dei, the great things of God. Okay, the original had the Latin title. Magnalia Dei. Well, we look forward to that. And Bovink is it's so great to have uh, kind of a reinterest in Bovink ever since uh, the translations came out in English back in '03, I believe, or thereabouts. And so it's been such a, a blessing to be able to read him and to study yeah. him. He's so helpful. Camden, have, yeah. have you seen this Bovink website with all things Bovink? Yeah, I haven't. I have. Yeah. Wow. So it was kind of comes out of the conference that was held a year ago. I think so. Uh, they yeah. have all kinds oh, of yeah. resources. Really? Just do a Google of Herman Bovink and the site should, should We'll try up. to put that in the show notes as well and let people know about that. I'm unaware. The lectures, I think, the audio from the uh, conference are, are at that site as well. Okay. I believe. Awesome. Well, we look forward to that. There's another book I want to mention. It's a book on right reason and Old Princeton um, written by Paul Kenneth Helseth. Who is uh, has some done some great work on uh, on the subject, and right reason has been a, a subject of discussion, uh, particularly in the world of apologetics and Vantillian apologetics. We start to ask, what did Old Princeton, particularly Warfield and Hodge, uh, mean when they speak about the use of reason and unbelieving reason? Is there a right reason, a reason that's aided or, or changed by regeneration? Is there not? Um, Van Til was was uh, very critical of Warfield on the use of reason. So this is a book that we will want to look at mm. and probably uh, dive into and hopefully try to get another interview on Paul, the subject as well. We should interview Paul. Paul, yeah. if you're listening, you're on record. You're <laughs> on notice. We're coming to find you. Yeah, uh, he's, it, it'll be a very it'll be a very good work. Uh, some of the uh, resources that he drew upon, uh, I'm using myself for my own dissertation because of. Edward's use of the term right reason. Yeah. No, that's an interesting discussion as well. Mm. So those are two or three books that that, uh, people should be interested in, uh, particularly the listeners to Christ the Center. So uh, visit um, your online bookstore or your physical bookstore if you still have one. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Then you can uh, uh, pick those books up. But I would like to recommend, as we typically do, WTSbooks.com, especially uh, the big sale on Bovink right now. Were there any other announcements or news before we uh, get started? Well, I guess the only other book thing I would rec- I would note is that John Frame's volume on the yeah, Doctrine, Doctrine of the, the Word of God, God, another large book, mm-hmm. uh, has come out as well. So those are P and R has been uh, busy. That's three three books that have come out together, pretty much. 
the the, uh, the Boving biography uh, frame on the Word of God, and then uh, uh, Paul Helseth's book. So yeah, they're keeping busy. Well, uh, that being said, we uh, have many books and uh, things to look forward to. There are also a bunch of conferences and stuff, but when this airs, I think many of those will already be over. So uh, we will forego the announcements of uh, conferences for today. And yeah, get, Camden. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, if I could just mention, uh, part of the re- I'm in Athens, Georgia right now, getting ready to uh, attend the RUF Large Group for UGA, but um, I was at the CCF conference this past oh, week. Oh, yeah. Which was absolutely excellent. There's so much good material. It was actually on marriage, and um, some of you, I, I'm not even married, but still, the way that they, uh, you know, handled relationships in general, and um, just yeah, in marriage as well, uh, was just so so good. Dave Harvey was there, and then the CCF faculty had a lot of great lectures, and um, I'm sure if you go to the CCF website, you can get a whole lot of those, um, and just kind of tool around and see what might be relevant to you or to your church, but. I definitely recommend the resources that were that were talked about there this past weekend. Yeah, thankful. Thank you for that and for mentioning that. Um, I forgot to slip my mind, but I've heard many great things about that conference, and they actually broadcast it live. So That's I'm right. hoping they'll put some of those mm. clips on their website if they haven't already. Yeah. All right. Well, with that in the can and uh, that information, I do want to mention that we are broadcasting live. I just was reminded in the chat room that I forgot to hit start. So we got the broadcast up now live on reformforum.tv slash live. So if you visit us there, you'll be able to uh, follow along as we record our episodes. You can also find a calendar with our schedule, our recording schedule at reformedforum.tv slash calendar. So visit us online for that. And we do also, as we begin, want to mention that we are listener-supported. Uh, we would like uh, for you to um, uh, visit us online at reformedforum.org, and if you would consider uh, supporting us, uh, we would be very appreciative. We have a Donate Now button at the top of the page, and uh, we thank you all for your support of Reform Forum and our program today, Christ the Center. All right, gentlemen. Well, today this is episode number 151, and we are going to talk a little bit about philosophy again, but uh, I don't uh, flip off the channel if uh, you aren't a philosopher because we're going to be speaking about philosophy of science. Now, obviously, uh, we live in a scientific age, a modern age, in which we have privileged the scientific method. It is seen as uh, the highest of all knowledge, the highest method out there. It's the method that needs to be espoused and and privileged by all rational and uh, learned people. But the question we have today is, is that correct? Should we privilege scientific knowledge? And even if we do, um, what are its uh, presuppositions? What are its strengths and limitations? Is it the only way that we can come to know things? Uh, all of these questions are involved when we open up the subject of philosophy of science. And uh, as a launching pad today, we want to speak about an article written by a man named A.J. Ayer. His article was titled, The Verification Method and the Elimination of Metaphysics. And Ayer was a student of a group called the Vienna Circle, which is a group of philosophers seeking to prove everything by the scientific method. They said only things that could be verified, even in your language, only propositions that could be verified or that we could give criterion for verification, only those statements were ones that had any meaning. If we couldn't give a scientific verification for a statement, then we need to throw it out the window. The Vienna Circle was a group of people, very influential. It was started by Ernst Mach, and among its members were Gustav Bergman, Rudolf Carnap, 
I think uh, Carlton's just dying to say a Carnap quote here a little bit later. <laughs> That's how I'll save it. I'll save it. That's for the, okay. uh, the climax of the show, right? Herbert Feigl, Philip Frank, uh, Kurt Gödel, Hans Hahn. That's a great name. And many others. So uh, the Vienna Circle, very influential. And they espoused a philosophy or a, a school of thought that has come to be known as logical positivism. And that's really what we're getting at with this article on A.J. Ayer. Uh, just as we begin, let me ask a, a question of, of anybody who would like to answer just about philosophy of science. How have you come across philosophy of science, or has it not been something you've thought of in the past? Uh, <laughs> I guess I'll, I'll tackle that one. Uh, my first exposure to philosophy of science was over 20 years ago, and I just started as a Christian minister in another denomination getting into philosophy in general and then discovering that there was this thing called philosophy of science i was never drawn to science but i was especially attracted to the philosophy of science which is a philosophical examination of the underpinnings of the practice of science it is a therefore a meta discipline okay it is a discipline that examines uh, another discipline so the philosophy of science is a, a consideration of what makes science tick from a philosophical perspective. And one of the first books that I read was uh, Thomas Kuhn's book, The Structures oh, yeah. of Scientific Revolution, right. uh, which talks about paradigm shifts. A very interesting book. So that, and then I've read other books over the years, uh, not a lot. It's not my area of specialty, but it is an area of interest that I have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I guess I just assumed that science was such a an important subject. It is an important subject, but I I think many people when they think about science, they just assume that mm-hmm. it's it's logical. It makes sense. This is a way right. we need to be going about things. But we don't always consider the presuppositions. Correct. How does science work? What kind of a world needs to exist in order for science to operate? correctly mm-hmm. and um and as we assume that it operates and so it wasn't until uh i started to read some works in apologetics many years ago that i started to consider uh the necessary world that needed to exist for science to operate and that drew drove me to the conclusion and the and the thought that science wasn't all that was out there it can't be not everything can be learned or studied scientifically or can it? That's what we'll get at. To, well, get at the, today. It's, it's interesting you should bring that up. It'll come in our discussion here. What is uh, does the uh, the logical positivist school rule out more than just quote unquote metaphysics? I, I happen to believe it rules out history, mm-hmm. or at least any meaningful understanding of history. But mm-hmm. uh, there's more that can be said about that. But certainly, science as a methodology for uh, doing research uh, is valuable, mm-hmm. but it's not presuppositionless. Right. And, uh, you know, as, so as we've seen that uh, science and philosophy are, are related, at least there's a philosophy of science, as any philosopher would be quick to want to tell you, they need to be the last one consulted on any matter. <laughs> and so uh, the philosophers of science uh, need not be excluded in this. And um, as we get going here, the philosophy of science, one of the key concerns here in in all of philosophy of science is this practice or method of demarcation. And that's a word basically means distinguishing or separating, drawing a line. And what people try to do as they encounter or try to study and get a hold of what science actually is, they try to demarcate 
between real science and pseudoscience. Mm. What is the what is the scientific method? What is the scientific experiment? What is pseudoscience or, or something posing as science? Is there a sharp line of demarcation? And there are many philosophers of science that have come up with various different answers to that question. And A.J. Ayer is, is right in the mix of this whole discussion. We are working uh, from uh, a book by Louis P. Poyman, P-O-J-M-A-N, called The Theory of Knowledge, Classical and Contemporary Readings, which is a wonderful uh, compendium or selection compilation of many different articles on all sorts of topics in philosophy, and we're working with uh, the chapter on the philosophy of science. So uh, we'll put a link to this in the show notes as well if anyone would like to pick this book up and uh, get an overview of various philosophical texts. But Carlton, what were your thoughts initially as uh, we start to look at air in particular? Uh, what did you take from his article? What did you think was strong or weak or any comments on the subject? One initial question reading his article was, where, where did this whole debate come from? He's such a seminal figure in terms of the impact of the Vienna Circle on our views of science and, and, and how so many people, as you say today, assume science. I was watching a commercial, I yeah. think, last week, and I, I honestly can't remember what it was for, but it was not, had nothing to do with medicine or science in particular, but the final line of the commercial was, and it's proven by science. (laughs) (laughs) And that's supposed to engender some kind of confidence in the consumer. Well, science says that this is true. And uh, and so I think it's helpful, even uh, maybe even surprising to people that there is such a thing as philosophy of science and guys like Ayer were people questioning these things. uh, What exactly is science all about? What are its tasks? Why is this the preeminent task of those who want to find out truth in the world. Why does it have to be restricted to what Eric called the verification principle? And I think it's helpful for, um, for us as we consider Eric to remember exactly how he got to ask the question that he did, namely, what is going to distinguish science from pseudoscience? And as I understand it, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, logical positivism and the approach of the Vienna Circle arose... within the branch of analytic philosophy. I may be going back too far. But in general, analytic philosophy was uh, discontent with the ambitious proposals of guys like Hegel, these sort of totalizing continental philosophers who were reaching for a complete uh, account of all of reality. And they came out with phrases like, time is unreal. And some of these guys were thinking, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, we need to limit the scope of philosophy to things that are more manageable. And so analytic philosophy largely started as an enterprise of description, trying to collate, classify, and describe particular complex problems in an understandable way without reaching into the far corners of of metaphysical speculation. And so I was reading one account of analytic philosophy that they became the proofreaders of science. Interesting. So that they were philosophy, according to the analytics, is supposed to be held in abeyance off on the sidelines until the real tangible scientific investigative work gets done, and then they pass off the results of, of empirical uh, investigation to the philosophers who then classify it and explain it with mathematical precision and linguistic accuracy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this it's been the, said by by some that uh, 
I, th- I think by Neil Caputo, who used to teach at Villanova. Dr. Oliphant shares this quip with, with us that continental philosophers are like the English department and the uh, analytic philosophers are like the math department. <laughs> right. You see, two of those guys get together, they're not going to agree on you know, what the real task uh, at hand is, right? There's a big difference, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so uh, analytical philosophy is really about uh, analysis of language. Right. And that, that, that plays a big part in this AR article, right? is that uh, one of the things he'll say is that philosophers have been betrayed by the way language works so that they they wander off into metaphysical speculation Mm -hmm. because of the way the grammar functions. It's a very empirical endeavor. Carlton, you've you've brought this up, uh, but... The, the thrust with a guy like Ayer and the logical positivists is that we need to get rid of all metaphysics for several reasons. One is that because they're, they're beyond the, the senses. I mean, how do we come to know them? Um, we can't get at them analytically. Um, where other philosophers would argue, well, you can do it transcendentally, but uh, they would reject that notion. And, um, and uh, they're just simply seeking uh, a method of knowing that's very scientific. And how can we develop criteria for which we could verify a metaphysical reality. And they would say, you can't. Therefore, we need to get rid of the entire endeavor. Mm-hmm. No more metaphysics. Correct. Which is after physics. Nothing out which there. Which, by definition, outside is, of the is a definition by stipulation. World. In other words, I would, I would say that, uh, you know, that Ayer is, has simply said metaphysics is, is, is off the table. Yes. And now we'll explain how we have done that. And as Carlton pointed out, this is what the analytic philosophers have done. Mm-hmm. They've really uh, right. carved out a space for themselves and eliminated the endeavor of metaphysics. I think many analytic, analytic philosophers are getting back into metaphysics now, but generally as a project, we don't talk about it. So this is a serious problem for the Christian, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, because if we, <laughs> we don't have any metaphysics, right. uh, we would come to the table and, and say, well, listen, how can we have... Um, the scientific worldview or the scientific method, there are certain presuppositions, certain things that need to exist metaphysically to enable this project to proceed. Mm-hmm. Just right. like Van Til talks about how a floor presupposes the joists or the or the, the supports that are underneath the floor. Right. Um, even though we cannot see the joists uh, by the fact that it's a floor with floorboards, we, we presume that the joists need to be there to hold it up. The same way, the scientific method cannot proceed just in a, a chance universe mm-hmm. uh, or a universe about which we can say nothing about the metaphysical world like Kant would like. We can't say anything about the noumenal. So that's starting with our critique, where we, where we would go with this. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it does appear to me as, as though Ayer is building off of Kant. He's saying Kant has made the noumenal, recognized the noumenal phenomenal distinction. We can't get at the noumenal. Things are as they are in themselves. So we're left with the phenomenal realm. Therefore, our job as uh, philosophers is to analyze how language works. Mm. Yeah. Proposi- how propositions uh, work. Often David Hume is cited as uh, the patriarch of the Vienna Circle, mm. where yeah. he... Um, he was reaching for a, a very rigorous empirical inductive method. Mm-hmm. And he acknowledged that unifying the particulars of our experience could not be justified apart from saying that it's merely a custom or a habit. So we, we assume causation. We assume the regularity of 
of past experiences will carry over into the future. And the Vienna Circle picked up on a lot of what Hume is saying, but I think it is important to to acknowledge the impact of Kant here. Kant said that the noumenal realm was inaccessible, and yet he retained it for certain practical, uh, for its practical value. He, yeah, he assumed right. that there was some sense of freedom and God and the self was necessary in some sort of vague way for us to have a unified field of experience. And I think the Vienna Circle guys, and Air in particular, can be seen as taking what Kant said was inaccessible and saying that it's now nonsensical. Mm. to even speak about yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, he says he says that. It basically says, why why does Kant allow for the noumenal if we can't access it? Exactly. So the, let's, and, and that's kind of what Van Til's criticism was. That oh, something, I, I agree. Something out there we can't speak about is just might as well not exist. That, that is it's a, almost Occam's razor. <laughs> an inconsistency in Kant to want to hold on to the noumenal realm while at the same time saying we can't have access yeah. to it. Well, here's that quote from Hume. Uh, you mentioned Hume being the... the prototypical or the father of of Vienna, the Vienna circle in many ways. He writes, if we take in our hand any volume of divinity or school metaphysics, for instance, let us ask, does it contain any abstract reasoning concerning quantity or number? No. Does it contain any experimental reasoning concerning matter of fact and existence? No. Commit it then to the flames, for it can contain nothing but sophistry and illusion. Chilling quote from mm. uh, for a Christian <laughs> right. to think about uh, the desire to anything that exists metaphysically, any book of divinity, commit it then to the flames because all it can be is a sophistry and illusion. Hume has set himself up to be able to say this by defining a world uh, in which that makes sense, but a world that doesn't look anything like the world we actually have. Yeah, and I think, you know... Uh Hume runs into the same problem as everybody else who's trying to deal with this, which is if you're going to espouse the principle of that which uh, isn't tangible, isn't real, that's something that, you know, in itself isn't tangible as well. So he makes these observations and these comments on, um, you know, pretty much reality while violating your own principles. So it's always going to be self-referentially incoherent um, when you try to make a dichotomy of those two worlds. Yeah, that's a great point, Jared. Yeah, that is, that is not an empirical observation, right? To say that the metaphysical isn't real, hmm. by definition. Yeah, and that's what. Yeah, exactly, and that's what the Vienna Circle ran into as well. I mean, anytime someone is going to be trying to put a wedge between something that's tangible and intangible, and not do that within um, obviously a, a Christian worldview, you're going to see problems of um, incoherence. Yeah. Well, not all people have uh, taken A.J. Ayer's tack or the tack of the Vienna Circle. Uh, although we wanted to start with this discussion, we did want to use it as a springboard into other thinkers and the developments of uh, philosophy of science and uh, the thought therein. And uh, there have been several other responses. We think of uh, a very influential philosopher of science whose name was Karl Popper. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carlton, do you recall what Popper's uh, uh, argument was? <laughs> From what I understand, Popper... Uh, we like Popper to some extent because yeah. it is exposing the futility <laughs> right. of this approach to uh, the world. He's basically saying that scientific theorems and, and, and even laws that we operate according to are merely useful, temporary, contingent paradigms that are waiting for refutation. Mm. So we can't have any certainty whatsoever. We, we're, we're almost, and these are my words, not his, just playing games when we assert uh, certain conclusions of science, uh, games might might be a little too harsh. They merely serve a pragmatic 
usefulness. You you had quoted yesterday when we spoke a little bit about this that uh, Popper would say that we are inborn with the expectation of finding regularity. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's I think that's kind of helpful. And he developed this method uh, that he rejected the idea of verification in favor of a method of falsification, saying, no, what is scientific is this falsifiability principle that a method is scientific if it can define what it would take to falsify it. And so you end up with these um, experiments out there. The the Popperian would go around uh, trying to falsify, do these quick kills, I think some of the later philosophers call the Popperian Mm. quick kill, where you would falsify a hypothesis and then move on to something else. So, Popper was a very sharp and influential reaction to the thought of A.J. Ayer and others in that vein. An example um, of uh, a theory that then would be disqualified is something that is unfalsifiable. So um, one of the classic examples is, you know, what Freud was doing so that you just posit out there that everything um, come from, you know, a wish fulfillment from the ego or something like that. And uh-huh. even if you don't see it um, in the observation well, then it's positive, so it must be there, but, you know, you can't actually prove it. But it's still there. You know, that's something that's unfalsifiable. And then, you know, by his definition, wouldn't be technically as scientific as, um, I guess, others that can't be falsified. Yeah, right. Uh, Popper had a – I enjoyed reading the article that Poyman includes from Popper, too. I didn't pass that around to everybody, but uh, we are reading this for another class. And uh, Carl Popper is a, an interesting guy. But then again, some people reject him. And uh, Jeff, you already mentioned Thomas Kuhn. Yeah. And uh, what was his idea in terms of how the progress of science occurs? Well, as he he said, and it's also mentioned in the uh, in the air in the in the Poiman the Poiman, uh, introduction yeah. to right. the section on philosophy of science. That, right. Uh, what what we're taught in the in school typically is that science is the accumulation of experimental experience. Mm-hmm. That, that's redundant. Experiment and experience mean the same thing. Sorry. Uh, but the, the, the accumulation of, of, uh, data, uh, hypotheses of verified or falsified and that which pass over into law, scientific mm-hmm. law. Yeah. Uh, and what, uh, Thomas Kuhn shows is that that's a little naive. Mm-hmm. Now, some have read Hume as being a, uh, precursor to postmodernism or relativism. And I suppose that is one. And he may himself, I think in places, uh, have suggested that that's a possible reading, but what he says is that uh, what science that what science is in history is, uh, par- is a group of scientists develop a paradigm for explaining reality or a certain aspect of reality. Over time, that paradigm, be- the edges of that paradigm, begin to fray, mm-hmm. and questions arise in research related to that paradigm. And eventually, the paradigm is unable to answer a, a whole host of questions. Mm-hmm. Now, the paradigm may be adjusted to answer those questions, or the paradigm may eventually be rejected, and a new paradigm comes and takes place. It. Now, an example of that would be the Copernican replacement of Ptolemaic science. Mm-hmm. With the, the structuring, uh, the, the position of, of the planets. The, that's right, the heliocentric or geocentric view of the universe, right? That, that's an example that most people are familiar with mm-hmm. of a paradigm shift. But the point that Kuhn is making is it's not merely the result of the addition of further information. 
paradigms, we might call them worldviews. A paradigm not only affects the answers given to questions that arise, it actually influences, if not controls, the kinds of questions that are asked. It's a, exactly. Um, I think Kuhn is insightful there, and we, yeah. we see this in many ways. Uh, I believe it was Popper's article who talks about this bare command to observe and how that doesn't make any sense because you need to tell somebody what to observe. Exactly. There's, there's no bare ob- observation. Well, let's give you an illustration. Have you ever had a, a, a sonogram done, an ultrasound of a baby? Not, in not the on womb? myself, no. But I mean, you've seen. Okay, I'm a. I have two daughters. Yes. And I went through the process of looking at the sonogram, right? And I'm going, yeah. "What is that?" Yeah, you don't know what to look for. Uh, you know, and the doctor has to to point out this is this, and and this is the 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 toes and the head and and the umbilical cord. And I'm thinking, okay, if you say so, but I don't see it. <laughs> right, and 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 you know what what science or different different philosophies of science can do just interpretive grids that we use upon reality whatever grid you have uh is is going to not only determine the types of questions that you ask but it's it's going to determine the types of observations that get through your grid right it's like uh when you buy a a new car or a used car whenever it's new to you all of a sudden you start to notice everyone's Mm. driving your car Mm-hmm. You never noticed this before that 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 there were so many Toyota Camrys or whatever you have mm-hmm. uh, on the road, and it, and it's kind of the way that our mind works. We start to look for those things, and everything else gets uh, cast to the side and forgotten. And in the same way, a scientific paradigm or certain paradigms are going to uh, shape and control the types of observations that we encounter right. and the types of conclusions that we're going to draw. You can see see some of this going on in our own day with the intelligent design movement. Mm. Yeah. It is a challenge of the the, the Darwinian or, or an evolutionary paradigm, right. right? And so it's not merely about about the facts, right? It's about what fits a world into the view that grid. interprets and makes sense of the facts. Yeah, yeah. I think we're reaching um, a point to to defend, uh, maybe as a surprise to some folks, that that Christians ought to be for science. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, sometimes it's 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 viewed. By the wider world, that oh, you're just a you're a Christian who 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 kind of turns a blind eye to the unassailable facts of science to believe your um, really metaphysical speculation. I mean, we encounter mm-hmm. this type of thinking everywhere we go that says uh, deal with the realities of the world in the public sphere, but leave your religious commitments uh, to the closet. Mm-hmm. Um, but but. A guy like Cornelius Van Til repeatedly insisted and yet was repeatedly misunderstood as being some sort of a priori deductivist who imposed an authoritative grid upon the world apart from the realities and particulars of that world. Yeah. And he, he really did nothing of the sort. There are whole lists of quotations that he gives where he's commending factual investigation. Mm-hmm. The question is, what is, what is the proper ontology what is our metaphysic that's going to yeah. ground the process of induction, which can't even proceed apart from some kind of philosophical baggage to even get off the ground? That's an excellent point, Carlton. It leads us into our question on the usefulness and limitations of science. Jared, I wanted to ask you about this, if you found any uh, contemporary examples or things that our listeners might be interested in that, that point out the usefulness or the limitations of science. Yeah, one thing that just came to mind was uh, a pretty recent example of Hawking 
Hoffman's newer book, The Grand Design, um, there's a lot of controversy and um, Al Mohler is writing about this. But, you know, I think it's an example of obviously Hawking is one of the brightest in, in the world um, on, on certain topics. But um, you see in, in some of the chapter titles, even, um, you know, one called The Mystery of Being, another called What is Reality? That's not in the field of um, physical science uh, explicitly. And so, you know, he is going into other territories there when he comments on the way the world works on a, on a philosophical level and, and being and those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, I, you know, that's, that's one example of, of a guy who really wants to comment on, on worldview issues who may not be as qualified as, as some other people in that field. Mm hmm. So, yeah, that, that's kind of the first thing that came to mind. Also, some of the classes, uh, one of the classes that is, is taught at Westminster and is available in the iTunes U uh, section of iTunes is uh, Theology and Secular Psychology, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, Dr. Pallison is obviously just brilliant at these things. He has a long history with dealing with psychiatric disorders. He worked in a psychiatric hospital for a he, while. He has a PhD in uh, history of, of science on psychology, I believe. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And a great book to read is uh, The History of Biblical Counseling Movement by Pallison. Mm -hmm. But this is, um, you know, speaking of CCEF earlier, this is completely their whole mission is, you know, as Pallison says, psychology is many times on uh, Christian turf. Or as a Van Til um, example, you know, borrowing from the, from Christian capital, and um, so what they want to do is say, okay, what can we observe from psychology that's helpful that we can then bring over into the Christian context, and what are some things that they get wrong when they start discussing um, humans in general from a, a secular point of view? Um, and just as a sidebar, I should also mention next year's conference that they're doing is actually on psychiatric disorders. Oh, um, wonderful. So definitely looking forward to that. But, yeah, that's another example of people kind of going off on different turf that they may not be um, as qualified to comment on. Uh, Jeff, speaking of uh, Christian turf, um, Van Til likes to talk about brute facts or the, or the, the idea that there aren't any. Uh, what turf is Christian turf if we're actually encountering facts? Well, all turf is Christian turf, right? <laughs> now, Van Til is not denying the existence of facts. He's simply saying that facts are what they are because God has said they are what they are. And he's the one who knows them and yes. who has interpreted them. Correct. Beforehand. And our job is to, uh, you know, you've heard the expression, think God's thoughts after him. Mm -hmm. uh, on a created level. Correct. Mm -hmm. On an analogical level, at the, the language, uh, a limited human level. Mm. Uh, and, and so uh, we, we uh, Carlton already touched upon this, so that there's no problem with doing uh, factual investigation. It's... You yeah. need to remember, though, that there has to be a, uh, something that upholds the universe in which we examine facts and connect A in fact A in fact B. Right. But they all are ultimately related to God and his will. So right. that, that's the portion that people don't care for. Uh, some Christians included uh, don't like the idea that uh, the meaning of facts are, de are determined by God. Now, Carlton, you're, you're, you're wanting to do work in the, the world of inerrancy and whatnot, and many, many times people try to apply a scientific method to the study of Scripture. We think of uh, theological liberalism and, and uh, modernism and all that that entailed. What about the scientific method? Um, is it ever possible to do the scientific method and come to a conclusion that proves that something in God's Word is not right or, or, or that God doesn't exist? 
It's interesting you ask this. I'm I'm working on a paper for class right now on the uh, the apologetic methodology of Clark Pinnock. Oh yes, who appealed to induction quite a bit. He saw himself as out warfielding Warfield in terms of uh, <laughs> inductively. <laughs> yeah, Not I don't quite. know about physically, uh, but but inductively, uh, he ran to induction time and again as the only lawful apologetic uh, for for the validity of scripture. He thought the gospel had to be open to investigation in an equal way between believer and non-believer for the gospel to have any kind of evangelistic compelling force. Mm. Um, and so he would, but it's interesting as you see the early and late Pinnock and, and of course he, he changed his views about every day, but um, he ends up saying that uh, your epistemology has to be grounded in scripture, but he leaves this caveat for induction. And then about the middle of his career, he ends up saying, okay, the Bible is rationally plausible because it gives a good explanation of the data. Mm. Then by his latest stage, he's rejected inerrancy. He's exalted the phenomena of Scripture over its self-witness. And he self-consciously and admits that he has embraced what he calls a soft rationalism and has moved from modernity to post-modernity. He wrote that in the late 90s. And so he ends up falling prey to, I think, what everybody does who, who, who adheres to a bare inductivism. You have to fall into a solipsistic uh, description of personal experience uh, because there's no universal criteria grounded in uh, proper ontology that gives our inductive reasonings and factual investigation any kind of universal thrust. That's a good point. Um, I have two quotes here yeah. that I'd like to, to fit read. Them in. I, I, I know. I <laughs> we know, whetted I, the appetite I, I of the listeners up front. <laughs> but I, I think these two quotes capture the essence of the importance of metaphysics for, for doing science, so yeah. to speak. The first is from uh, Rudolf Carnap, who is a, a member of the Vienna Circle, and he's explaining why they're rejecting metaphysics. And this is how he describes it. He says, metaphysical propositions are neither true nor false because they assert nothing. They contain neither knowledge nor error. They lie completely outside the field of knowledge or theory, outside the discussion of truth or falsehood. But they are like laughing or lyrics or music expressive. They express not so much temporary feelings as permanent emotional or volitional dispositions. The danger lies in the deceptive character of metaphysics. It gives the illusion of knowledge without actually giving any knowledge. Yeah. And this is the reason why we reject it. He's saying metaphysical speculation may tell you something about the type of person you're talking to or you know that they are religiously committed to some sort of transcendent being, but it doesn't really give you any hard and fast knowledge. Now, mm -hmm. contrast that statement with that of Van Til from Defense of the Faith, he says, so hopeless and senseless a picture must be drawn of the natural man's methodology. Just imagine him talking about Carnap here. Um, Based as it is upon the assumption that time or chance is ultimate. On his assumption, his own rationality is a product of chance. Our argument as over against this would be that the existence of the God of Christian theism and the conception of his counsel as controlling all things in the universe is the only presupposition which can account for the uniformity of nature which the scientist needs. Yeah, And so you see right there, Van Til is asserting a 
ultimately creator-creature distinction that gives facts any kind of intelligibility. Yeah, that's a great point. And the, why does not Carnap notice that he's making a metaphysical statement by <laughs> denying? I mean, really, he's he's he. It's it's almost the same thing when Van Til says the atheist must assume the God he denies. You know that the girl that sits on her father's lap and slaps her father in the face, right, relies upon the lap on which she sits. Carnap uh, is is uh, denying. You know, of course, it might be helpful. We didn't d- define what metaphysics is. Uh, well, I said earlier, it's ab- above after physical. physics, above physics. Right. I mean, that's going back to Aristotle. But metaphysics is the study of reality. Mm-hmm. What is there, uh, and that's why it's. Carnap, by definition, can't deny metaphysics unless he wants to become a Buddhist. <laughs> well, in many ways, it's a pragmatic thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think uh, a lot of this uh, reduces to pragmatism. And Van Til would be keen on that. <laughs> His dissertation uh, did something well, similar to idealism. Philosophy, in some ways, is that way. The philosophy gets reduced to to the analysis of how language works. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, of course, that's helpful. Uh, Inasmuch as analytical philosophy helps us to clarify uh, concepts in in language, it's helpful. But when it it cuts us off at the knees Mm -hmm. and denies metaphysics, it's it's, uh, problematic. And uh, as was already said earlier, it's self-refuting. You know, I think there's there's an analogy to be seen there where the Vienna Circle saw their task as, in a sense, rescuing philosophy from its intramural squabbles and its speculative disagreements. They thought that if they restricted the scope of knowledge to what was verifiable, then that would save philosophy and make it a unified science where where philosophy would now just collate and classify together as a happy family what the scientists deemed verified. Mm. And in the process, I think they ended up gutting philosophy of of its of its real task to uh, as as these philosophers thought about the nature of reality and broader concerns. They ended up gutting it, and as you say, it became just a pragmatic, descriptive. Right. Uh, now, also notice that they they eliminated aesthetics and uh, ethics. Right. Okay. But you lose so much, and, and in a similar way, here's the analogy <laughs> that as the unbeliever tries to reason about truth and about evidence and about meaning and value, uh, apart from the triune God of Scripture, they, too, end up uh, losing the very truth they're seeking to find. Yeah, that's really what the apologist gets to see time and time again with all these different philosophies and approaches to life. How do we, uh, where do we move from here? Who in our communities is speaking about the relationship of uh, science to faith is, uh, is typically how it's cast? Jared? Uh, Verm Poitras has an excellent book called Renaming Science um, that's out there that deals a whole lot with um, these issues with creation debate and, um, and and everything that really we've been talking about, both in philosophy of science and then getting into specifics. Yeah, we've, um, we have an interview uh, on file with him on that very book, so I'll put that in the links as well. Very insightful. Yeah, and, you know, I should mention in the broader context as as well, I don't know how much we want to go into this, but um, a lot of controversies have started with the BioLogos website. Yeah, Yeah, And the different articles and and writings that are on there, and 
I, we probably shouldn't go too much into it, but um, the tone of it can be at times that um, evolution really is a, a, a conclusion that science has drawn that will never be refuted and is the way things go. And so if the responsible Christian really wants to be a part of the scientific community, then we have to get on board with what um, evolutionary scientists are doing. And, um, and it's kind of trying to meld theology and, and evolutionary science together. Um, so I don't know if I would encourage listeners to go there, but um, at the very well, it's least, part of the discussion, even right. in our yeah. community. So yeah. it's yeah. it's worth looking yeah, at. There, there is a, a Jared at James Anderson's website. Uh, we've interviewed James Anderson in, uh, over yeah. the summer. He has uh, an evaluation of a book that was written by one of the gentlemen who's involved with the BioLogos website that's actually quite helpful uh, on the issue of bringing together evolution and orthodoxy and how orthodoxy seems yeah. to suffer from <laughs> from that uh, wedding, that marriage. Well, those are a few of the resources that are out there. If uh, you have any resources that you would like to share on the subject or if you have any comments, of course, you can visit us online. And we uh, we read all the comments and we enjoy conversations. So visit us uh, on the uh, page for this particular episode when it's published and uh, follow along. Um, it is about time to wrap up our discussion today. So I do want to uh, plug various things. Uh, of course, Westminster Theological Seminary is available on the social networks, on the Internet at uh, WTS, or I should say Facebook.com slash Westminster Online and YouTube.com slash Westminster Online. You can also follow them on Twitter. Jared, what's the handle? It is Westminster TS, Westminster Theological Seminary. Westminster TS at Westminster TS. You can follow us online at Twitter at Reformed Forum. And uh, we have a fun time interacting uh, on the Twitterverse. <laughs> Of course, you can visit us online at reformedforum.org, and there you'll find all sorts of links to various resources and uh, links to all of our audio programs and uh, several video clips on our network of sites. Uh, So we want to encourage everyone to join the conversation, discuss with us, criticize us, and uh, have a healthy, fruitful conversation online at reformedforum.org. I want to thank everybody for listening, for joining us, and we hope you join us again next time on Christ the Center.